What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Zach Valisi. Today's Super Size Squawk Pod. Three big interviews on the top story fueling Wall Street and beyond. The pain at the pump for consumers. The national average fell about four cents. Don't spend it all in one place, Becky. <laughs> Which could be an energy buying opportunity, says Goldman Sachs head of commodities, Jeff Curry. Investment continues to run from this space at a time it should be coming to this space. Plus, legendary tech investor John Doerr. We have too many unicorns. On the move away from fossil fuels. It's the largest economic development of our lifetimes. It ranks up with the internet in terms of its impact. It's a revolution. And a special interview with Ken Langone, the billionaire co-founder of Home Depot on energy and consumer inflation, and what feels like 2022's perfect storm. If we don't address the enemy within, the enemy within is our divisiveness. If we don't address that, uh, our future won't be as bright as it would be if we did. It's Monday, June 27th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, kill please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Brian Sullivan. Brian, long time no see. It's been at least three minutes. I know. You might remember me from such shows as Worldwide Exchange. And, and by the way, please say hello to my friend, at the coffee cart outside. I miss him. Oh, I will. Andrew's going to be joining us a little later this morning. He is live at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Of course, stocks surged in last week's four days of trading. The Dow for the week up by 5.4%. The S&P was up by 6.5%. And the NASDAQ was up by a whopping 7.5%. If you were not involved in this, you missed out on a lot. A lot of questions this morning about what this means. Is this the end of the horrible times we've seen? Or is this just a rally in the middle of a bear market? Take a look at where the major averages stand from the record highs after last week's gains. The Dow is 14.75% from its high that was set back in January. The S&P climbed out of bear market territory. It's now down just 18.8%. And that's right, we said just 18.8% from its January high. That is still an incredibly lousy year, one of the worst first halves we've seen uh, for the S&P on record at this point. NASDAQ right now, it's down more than 28%, 28.4% from the high that it hit last November. Yeah, and if you still get paper statements on your 401k, do yourself a favor, just throw it, take it from the mailbox Don't directly look. to the garbage. <laughs> do not open it. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be ugly unless you are all cash, but think long term. I know it's a sucky time. All right, well, one piece of maybe good news is that gasoline prices are starting to tick lower. The national average fell about four cents. Don't spend it all in one place, Becky, over the weekend to 4.90 a gallon. That's about 12 cents below the record highs, hit around 10 days ago. By the way, in California, according to AAA, the average price is $6.32. Crude oil prices kind of holding steady around 107. And this matters for stocks, Becky. Over the weekend, Evercore put out a stock strategy note saying, they expect the S&P 500 may rally in the short term back to about 4,000 
before then resuming its downtrend and falling back below 3,500. And their strategist there, Julian Emanuel, saying in the note that they don't see stocks stopping their fall longer term until gas prices turn around or continue to move consistently and significantly lower. Gasoline prices apparently matter to the stock market, too. Yeah, because at this point, we are watching gasoline prices to really cutting into consumer confidence and potentially affecting people's travel, although maybe not this week. AAA is actually predicting that more than 47 million people will travel 50 miles or more uh, from home over the Independence Day weekend. That would be an increase of more than 3% compared to what we saw just a year ago in 2021 and just shy of 2019 levels. And remember, that was when there weren't many people flying. They were just driving places because of COVID. 42 million of the people who are traveling are expected to travel by car this weekend, despite those high gas prices. AAA says concerns over flight cancellations and delays could be driving that increase. But Brian, let's get back to your point about what this means for the markets, whether this is a temporary pause or whether we have seen the worst and it will be an upside recovery from here. I mean, it's pretty tricky if you are trying to to trade timing wise on some of these moves, if you feel confident at this point or not. Well, the one thing about gasoline prices is that it's, they're incredibly inelastic. I mean, you think that people would just stop driving, but they don't. Most people drive or fly because they have to or because they really want to enough that they're going to just deal with the higher. They're going to grumble about it. It's painful at the gas pump, but they're going to end up paying. It normally takes about six to nine months to see a meaningful drop off in economic activity with a severe spike in the price of gasoline. Give me your under over. Okay, anything less than blank hours and you're driving. For me at this point, I think it's eight. Anything under eight or nine hours and I'm getting in the car rather than hopping on a plane. Look, for me, it's 10 or 12, but that's not an impact. For for me, it's 10 or 12, but that's an impact more of the delays and the problems you're going to deal with going to an airport. If there's weather, if there's any issues, trying to take kids through the airports. I mean, we, we routinely will drive 10 or 12 hours to go see family rather than than get on an airplane. And it, that, again, less to do with with gas prices, because, by the way, it's really expensive to buy plane tickets, too. Less to do with gas prices, yes, more to do is. with the delays and, and not sure you're going to get there. Not sure you get stuck. Good afternoon, folks. Our nation's and our world stand at a genuine inflection point in history. President Biden, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and other G7 members. Are gathering in Germany today. And a key item on the agenda is former member of the G8, Russia. As Europe navigates an energy crisis and inflation continues to ripple across the globe, the leaders of the seven largest economies issued a statement today in support of Ukraine, where the war in Russia has been going on for four months. The G7 alliance's unity is being tested. Four countries have signed on to squeeze Russia by banning its gold exports. And while there's an agreement to pursue price caps on Russian oil that would limit the money the country is making to finance the invasion of Ukraine, There's no agreement yet on exactly what it would look like. CNBC's Kayla Tausche is reporting on site in Bavaria. The White House says that it is going to be putting tariffs on about $2.3 billion of Russian exports. There are four major global economies that will no longer be accepting gold imports from Russia as a way to try to keep oligarchs and the Kremlin from being able to pay its debts and make its purchases using things like gold if rubles are not accepted. 
The price of oil remains elevated, and that continues to reverberate around the world. Here's Becky with Goldman Sachs' global head of commodities, Jeff Curry. Jeff, we've been talking this morning about how Russia has been able to sell just as much, in fact, even more oil than it was pre-sanctions by selling it to different places, namely India and China. If that's the case, and oil's a global market, and Russia is still selling just as much, if not more, oil, where would price prices be if these sanctions actually worked, and if India, let's say, got on board and said, we won't buy any more oil like the G7 ministers are trying to, to pressure it to do? Uh -oh. I think you can look at the product prices and they tell you a lot about where it would be. Because let's not forget, while crude oil exports are okay, um, when we look at what's going on on the product side, you've still lost 500, 700,000 barrels per day of products. And when you do the crack adjusted price, you're somewhere around in that, you know, 150, 160 range. Because let's remember, product cracks are at record levels right now. And even like last week, you know, diesel prices kept going up even as WTI and Brent sold off with investor selling, which is telling you in-use products are substantially higher, um, you know, right now, really driven by that loss of product. So I think it's important to look at petroleum as opposed to just crude oil. Um, and I think, you know, you look at the product prices. Remember, you know, like jet fuel was trading something like $300 a barrel, you know, a month and a half ago. And, you know, you know, diesel prices, you know, frequently spike into that $200 barrel range. So um, the product prices answer that question. Although how much of the product price is because of what's happening with Russia, because of the sanctions imposed, and how much of it is because of our limited refining capacity. And again, this just gets back to demand as every one of these stories we touch on, you know, airline flights, uh, too much demand, that there's not enough to go around. Same, same story with refinery capacity. We hear that the refiners are, at least in the United States, are at like 94% capacity. So there's not much more they could do, even if there was additional, you know, oil that was supplied to some of these places. Well, uh, you know, you, you have definitely lost U.S. refining capacity. We estimate 1.2 million barrels per day over the last several years. But I think, you know, the important point here is these markets are global. They're not local. And when we look at the global refining capacity that can be utilized, you've essentially taken out some of that Russian refining capacity, whether it's steel oil, aluminum, whatever it might be. Over the past two decades, we relied on the Chinese growing capacity of, you know, you know, copper smelters, steel mills, refineries, all of that. And they're not really willing to export all this stuff anymore. Um, and then you combine that with the restrictions around Russia, we've lost global refining capacity. And that's what um, global product prices are reflected. You know, Jeff, I've got a really basic question, which I hopefully I hope is not dumb because I, I can't I honestly I'm trying to figure out what I'm missing here. And that's this. They're talking about this potential price cap mechanism through limiting shipping insurance to cap the price of oil that's being bought in Europe and parts of the world. But at the same time, Europe is saying they're going to stop buying oil as of January 1st. So my confusion is this. Why are they talking about price caps when they're going to stop buying them? Is this some sneaky way of maybe saying we're going to need to keep buying it, but we're going to limit the amount of money Vladimir Putin can make? Or would these caps just be for the couple of months left in the year 
when they're still buying it. I, I haven't been able to figure that out. Well, the Americans were the ones who introduced the price caps and you know, the Europeans were the ones who introduced the sanctions. And, you know, they're all in you know Germany discussing these issues right now. But I think the, the, the key point is that that price cap will end up creating a loss of supplies. The idea was they put the price caps in there and that's going to keep you know, supplies healthy. Um, but the bottom line is, as prices go higher, it basically creates a backwards bending supply curve. The higher the price goes, the deeper the, the, you know, the price cut cap is, then that, you know, the Russians don't have the incentive to supply the oil. So this is all viewed strictly from you know, a Western view as opposed to thinking about how Russia would respond to a price cap. Um, you know, because ultimately costs rise and, you know, everything from fuel, all of it continue to go up as oil prices go higher. That then restricts the ability or the incentive for the Russians to supply the oil. So you got to look at it from both sides. So, Jeff, all of that kind of put it in your pipe and smoke it and then tell us what this means for oil prices from here through the end of this year. Or more importantly, gasoline prices. I don't think people well, care about yeah, oil. I think, by the way, that's how I, that distinction, I think, is becoming critical here. The bottom line, the, the situation across the energy space is incredibly bullish right now. You know, the, the, the pullback in prices that we saw last week, we would view that as a buying opportunity. Um, you know, at the core of our bullish view of energy and commodities more broadly is the underinvestment thesis. And that applies more today than it did two weeks, three weeks ago, because you've just seen an exodus of money from the space, whether it's in the equities or it's in the commodities, credit, you name it. Um, you know, investment continues to run from the space at a time it should be coming to this space. Because ultimately, remember, the only way you're solving these problems is through increased investment. So we stick to our guns of, you know, oil prices moving this summer up into that $140 barrel range, you know, given record level cracks. And that's going to be a lot more upside to product prices. Let's remember gasoline prices traded, you know, treaded water last week in that sell off and diesel prices actually went up, which is an indication just how tight these underlying markets. One last point I want to say is, when we think about what's going on in Europe right now, you know, with Nord Stream 1, you know, you know, the supplies of gas going into Europe coming off from Russia, you're going to have to replace that gas. And oil is going to be one of the places you're going to use to replace it with. Coming up on Squawk Pod, the always outspoken Ken Langone, the Home Depot co-founder and philanthropist on division in American life and our economy. Also, Langone on the Fed's fight against inflation. They should have raised interest rates 1% two weeks ago. I think maybe the next interest rate increase should be 1%. Do a couple of those and get it done with and take the pain. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. 
This is Squawk Pod from CNBC, and today, Brian Sullivan sits in. All right, good morning and welcome or welcome back to Squawk Box, which today is 50% hosted from the NASDAQ market site, New York's famous Times Square. Right here. <laughs> it's... <laughs> Hi, Becky. I wish that we were in person together. Hi, Brian. Now. I do miss you. And- in Michigan. Uh, hi, Becky. We get- oh, you're not supposed to drop where I'm at. Oh, yes, I'm in. It's fine. I'm it's jealous. Fine. I'm in Michigan. We got the tin can with the string. Amazing modern television, Becky. Thank you. We have a very special guest joining us this morning to talk about inflation, the Fed, and why he calls these times treacherous. Let's welcome Ken Langone. He's the co-founder of Home Depot good friend of the show. And Ken, it's really good to see you. Great to have you back here. Thanks for having me. I look forward to being back and having some dialogue with you. I miss Joe and I miss Andy, but uh, we'll make do without them. In fact, I think I got the better of the draw today, having you here and having those two guys on vacation or wherever they are. Well, let's talk a little bit about what you told us a year ago when you were here. We, we, We spoke with you and you were very worried about inflation at that point. I think what you said was that this was going to be a situation where federal stimulus was kind of like throwing a gasoline canister on what was already a white-hot fire with inflation. A year later, unfortunately, it turns out you were right. You know, there was no upside to their assumption that it was transitory. None. None whatsoever. The safe course of action would have been to put the brakes on then or to begin to raise interest rates then. And as I said earlier, Uh, I liken it to the, would you rather jump out of a two-story building or a 10-story building and have a chance of survival? And I think think right now we're in real treacherous land because we've got to pull this in, this this current sense of maybe it's not going to be as bad. I hope it's not as bad, but I think the tonic has got to be far more aggressive. I think, for example, they should have raised interest rates 1% two weeks ago. I think maybe the next interest rate increase should be 1%. Do a couple of those and get it done with and take the pain. You, you can't address inflation at the level it's at now in a almost passive way. It just won't hunt. So I'm very concerned, and I, and I do believe we've got a, a confluence of things here that cre- exacerbate the problem. We've got the Ukraine situation. We've got Europe. We've got our social unrest in America, which we must address. We've got to figure a way out to pull America together. We, we need to be one again. We're dividing up worse and worse and worse. And I think if we don't do something about that, that could be a real serious long-term problem for America. When you talk about the divisions, you're, you're, you're talking about things going back a few years with some of the protests back and forth. You're talking about the Supreme Court decision that just got handed down. What do you mean? Becky, I think this, this polarization has gone on for at least 20 years. I think back to when uh, uh, Newt Gingrich was uh, Speaker of the House and the, the divisiveness that was there prevalent. It's gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. And, and my concern is there are serious issues that need to be addressed. We need to take issue with the fact that our Social Security system, how are we going to, we going to make sure it's funded for people? You've got a huge wave of people about to enter retirement. We have to address the issue of health care. There's so many social issues that we've got to address that we have to work on together. I, and I, I don't mean to sound political, but it's not really political. I, I can't tell you how grateful I am that we have a man like Joe Manchin on the scene. What he did, if you think inflation's bad now, think of what would have happened if BBB had passed. Just think of how much more money would have been thrown onto the fire, how much more gas. So I'm very concerned. 
we're a great nation. We always will be. We're going to make sure we stay great if we can pull all the divergent parts together and say, let's work together. You don't get everything you want. I don't get everything I want. But together, we'll have more than we have right now. And, and that's American. That's when we're at our best. When we pull together as a nation in World War II, we whipped anybody's ass who came in front of us, okay? Why? Because we were together. Uh, this, this pandemic where if you wear a mask, you're one party. If you don't wear a mask, you're another party. I mean, how petty do we get? If, if masks were the thing to wear to deal with a pandemic, wear the mask. It, it, we, we've now concluded that we can, uh, we can measure people or measure people for what they are by things they do or don't do. That's wrong. Let's address it. Look, I put this on every morning. We are the greatest nation on earth. There'll never be another America, ever, ever. Believe me. And I'm passionate about that. That said, if we don't address the enemy within, the enemy within is our divisiveness. If we don't address that, uh, our future won't be as bright as it would be if we did. So I, I agree 100 percent with you. I agree with going back and tracing this back more than two decades. And it, it seems to get worse every year. You would think that there would be a common enemy like COVID that we could all unite around. That seemed like it could have been a World War II moment. Where else do you find a common threat, a common enemy, something that makes people look, put aside their differences and say, yes, we we agree with each other on these things. Let's celebrate that. You start with a common point of view. I mean, for example, go back to inflation last year. I, I didn't conclude that this chairman did what he did, or I should say didn't do what he should have done gotcha. because he wanted to get reappointed. That's unfair. I have no way of knowing it, and I shouldn't reach that conclusion. On the other hand, I can understand people connecting the dots and saying, hey, wait a minute. Infl look, a guy that I think gets it right better than anybody else, more than anybody else, is Stan Druckenmiller. He and I talk every day. And last year, we were both saying how insane it was that we weren't addressing the issue of inflation. I saw it in our truck leasing business. I saw it in our food distribution business. You could, you could see it in the consumer's spending habits. Used cars are selling for more than they sold for when they were brand new. I mean, that's insane. So all the signs were there, and, and as I say, the safe course of action would have been to say, maybe it's transitory, but we're not going to take the chance that it's not, and we're going to put the brakes on. So we, now, would that have precipitated a recession? Maybe, but if it did, the recession would be less severe than the one that's coming by virtue of what we have to do now. How inevitable is that recession in your view? Are we in a recession right now? Never say never. I think we are in a recession right now. I think intellectually and mentally we're in a recession right now. Uh, my partner, Tom Teague at Salem Leasing, we're now getting calls from trailer manufacturers that they have availability. Six months ago, they didn't. Things are starting to loosen up. Look at the inventory issues. Uh, we saw each other last week at the Economics Club where Brian Cornell spoke. Brian Cornell did the sensible thing. The thing you never want to be as a retailer is out of stock for what your customer wants to buy. And for most of the pandemic, we've been chasing inventory. That number actually could have been quite higher um, had we had some of the inventory we needed. But I think we all know it's been a very volatile supply chain environment. It's been very inconsistent. And 
we had a bit of the perfect storm. A lot of the inventory that I would have loved to have had in the back half of 2021 arrived late. Right. We, we pulled forward inventory for things like back to college and back to school early to make sure we have it. And you know, we just looked at the kind of the state of our position and said, all right, this is the right thing to do. But it was a confluence of changing consumer trends, inventory that arrived much too late, and then our desire to make sure we're well positioned for these big upcoming holidays. So one of the other drivers behind our decision was to say, all right, I can be putting merchandise in front of our guest, our shopper, that they're not looking for right now, or I can clear that up and make sure we win in the important back to school season. We're ready for back to college. We're ready for the Halloween season, which I think is going to be big across America. And we're ready for the holiday season. So he went off. Here's this great shortage on one hand. Here's this tremendous demand on the other hand. Walmart, there's nobody better at figuring the future than Walmart in their business. Walmart, Target, go right down the list. They're all gagging on inventory for one reason. They wanted to be in stock. They are in stock. And they wanted to make sure they had what the customer wanted when the customer wanted it. So they're digging right now out. They're going to be fine. But there's a good example of where we've got to take the pain. And I commend Brian. I told him this the other day, and you were there. I commend him for biting the bullet, not wishing the inventory out. Be aggressive. Mark it down and move it out. Get it out. Get ready for next spring. Have your shelves ready to take in next spring's fashion or whatever it is. So, so uh, I, no, I, I think, and I'm not second-guessing anybody, but I think we made a tragic mistake by not being more aggressive and not assuming inflation was the real thing last year and not... There's no luxury in saying it's transitory. None. Brian? Hey, Mr. Langone. It's Brian Sullivan. Hey, no, I wish I was there in Ken, person, Brian. but I appreciate it. You want me to call okay, you, Mr.? Okay, Ken, thank you very much. Okay. Go ahead. You, not yet. Not yet, but I'm, but I'm getting there, Ken. Thank you. You got uh, more um, hair than me. That merits it right there. For now, it's falling out every year, Ken. Listen, I'm getting, I know I'm getting the up feeling. there, too. And, and you know, here, here, here's the thing. I, I want to go back to the political thing. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned politics, and, and I remember Tip O'Neill, even when I was a kid in Washington, D.C., how much of what we have, the problems of America now, is this permanent political class? And I'm not going to single out any party, okay? Becky and I were born the same year. By the way, that year is when effectively Joe Biden, Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, they were all getting elected. These are people that have been serving in office for literally as long as I have been alive. And I commend them for their public service. But we are creating effectively political permanent political classes in both parties, by the way, that it just feels like it's going to degrade the ultimate trust in the institution of government. Do you have a I take agree, on that? I, yeah, I agree with you. I, I support U.S. term limits. I think these guys ought to go home after a couple of terms and, and live, with the, live with the laws they pass. Look, both parties, when they're there, they never want to let go. I asked Mitch McConnell, I had a lunch with him, private lunch a couple of years ago, him and another good friend of mine, Walter Buckley, and I asked him specifically, what do we do about term limits? And his answer quickly was, you're not going to have term limits, and that was the end of it. We need term limits in the worst way in America. There aren't many Joe Manchins out there. Just think of the pressure that Joe Manchin has been under by his party for saying he wasn't going to go for BBB, or he wasn't going to go for breaking up the filibuster. Enormous pressure. There's a man that I believe, okay, that puts America ahead of his selfish or his party's interests. So, Brian, believe me, I'm all for term limits. I would do anything I could to help 
have term limits. We need them. We need restoration of respect for our institutions, including the Supreme Court. What do you think about the Supreme Court's decision to do what it did with Roe v. Wade, not just to say that the Mississippi law could stand, but to overturn Roe v. Wade, kick it back to the states, which now you're going to have almost half the states in the union uh, on opposite sides of this, of this situation. And what do, I, what do I think? Selfishly, had they left it alone, I think I'd have been better off, personally. Why? Had would, they not overturned? Had they not overturned it, based on what Robert said. On the other hand, I, I make the analogy, you know, that game you play 20 people in a room and I whisper in your ear, Telephone. And all of a sudden, telephone, by the time it gets back to me, it's no relevance, whatever, to what I said. I think these people that are strict constitutionalists are worried about that. In other words, it's like a slice of salami. The fact of the matter is the Constitution clearly states, and I'm not a constitutional lawyer, so give me a pass if I'm wrong. The Constitution states that which is not specifically given to the federal government is the province of the states and the people. But that's why Clarence Thomas wrote what he would like to say. Well, yeah, but that, that's scary. What Clarence Thomas wrote by going beyond yeah. abortion, but thank God Aliotto, in his, in his opinion, said, we're not talking about that. There's no connection here between the two. So what do I think? I think if we were rational, if we were, if we were constructive toward each other, we'd sit in a room and say, okay, look, how do we do it? Well, number one, New York State's got the most wide open abortion laws in the country. Longest, you can take it out the longest you To me, I have an issue with that. I, I have trouble with aborting a nine month a baby about to be born. You know, I, particularly since I've just had a brand new granddaughter three weeks ago and I see the beauty of this thing and, and, and her eyes. And, and so what I'm saying is, I think there need to be limits in that regard. On the other hand, on the other hand, I'm not gonna judge anybody. I'm a devout Roman Catholic. I'm for life. That said, I'll leave it up to God to decide when we all get up there who did what wrong and who did what right. I, that's my belief. But, but I think right now the last thing we needed in America was more divisiveness. And I'm praying to God that once this emotion settles down, that, that people will understand that abortions are not outlawed in America. They're outlawed in certain provinces, certain states. Or, or they're restricted in certain states, that's like the Mississippi law. That's what precipitated this whole thing, the 15 weeks. Uh, it, it's a spiritual issue in a certain sense because it, it, it hinges on your faith. Uh, um, I wish we didn't have to deal with it, but we do have to deal with it. Um, it's a complicated question. It's a, it's a complicated question, but it's a fair question. Will be next. next on Squawk Pod, Andrew Ross Sorkin from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Nope, he's not avoiding special guest Ken Lingone. It's not you. It's not I you. I promise know, you, it's, I it's won't me. break your legs. It's not I you. It's me. You. He's got legendary venture capitalist John Doerr, an early backer of Google and Amazon, on the critical opportunity he sees today. I think uh, now is the time when it's incredibly clear that we've got to double down on the renewable, free, abundant energy sources that are not controlled by petro-dictators. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? 
AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up and Becky. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick. InvaMed Associates, Ken Langone, has been joining us this morning. Andrew's also here. He joins us from Aspen, Colorado this morning. And Andrew, you have a lot of big guests out there. Did I frighten you away, Andrew? I'm, every time I show up, you're gone. You know, I was thinking the same thing. It had, it's, it's not you. It's not, you I know, promise it's, you, it's I won't me. break your legs. It's not you, I it's me. You. We are live in Aspen at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and energy and high costs are just some of the big themes at this festival here. We're going to be using energy as the jumping off point for our next big guest this morning, Kleiner Perkins chairman. John Doerr is here. He's also, of course, the author of Speed and Scale. And we should mention that uh, NBC Universal News Group is the media partner of the Aspen Ideas Festival this year. And we should also mention we're here at the door Hosier Center, that's which you donated to the, to, <laughs> welcome, to the group. Welcome to my center. This is your, your home. So thank you for having us. Pleasure. Uh, let's talk about energy. Uh, it is the big topic here. Uh, but there's we're sort of at a very interesting moment, which is that we've been talking about climate and climate-friendly uh, energy. Um, and there's a debate happening in the country about whether that has actually pushed too far, given the moment that we're now living in, uh, given uh, Russia, Ukraine, the price of oil and whatnot. How do you think about those two issues? I think uh, now is the time when it's incredibly clear that we've got to double down on the renewable, free, abundant energy sources that are not controlled by petro dictators. If you look at our situation in the world, we're funding both sides now of this war over the Ukraine with Putin. And um, we need more sources of energy and we especially need more sources of clean energy. It's a false choice here. We've got to do both. Well, so the question, though, is, is, is there, and some people say it's a false choice to focus on climate-friendly energy because it can't happen fast enough. So the question that I would ask you is, is there, is there technology out there today that you think can be implemented that would bring down, for example, the price of energy in the immediate term, say, next 12, 18 months? In, in, in 18 months, you can deploy new solar energy at scale. You uh, cannot build a new natural gas liquefaction plant in that same period of time. So, yes. So how do you think about it? So you, so you think actually it's a false choice to suggest even that what we need to be doing is doing more drilling, doing more refining. A, a lot of the issues that I'm sure some of the big energy companies who, who, who uh, spoke uh, in Washington, the Biden administration met with uh, just look, earlier this, look, last week. Don't rely on my opinion. Right. The IEA says we don't need to drill for any more hydrocarbons to meet the market need. We, we, we've got enough reserves develop those, but we don't need to. If that's true, though, how, how do you look at the price of energy today and what you think it may or may not do to the larger economy right now? 
I'm not an energy expert, right. but my take on this is that the prices are responding to what your audience, more than anyone else, right. views will happen with efforts to put price caps through insurance companies in Western nations on an energy transaction between uh, China and Russia. I don't, I don't know how we're going to put price caps and make them effective. So, but, but then we have a larger issue, which is if energy continues to spiral, if you believe it will spiral, and I don't know, do you believe it will in terms of cost? I, I, I believe we are in a, an epic transition from a fossil fuel economy to a clean energy economy. It's the largest economic development of our lifetimes. It ranks up with the right. Internet in terms of its impact. And it's a revolution. In real revolutions, there's winners and there's losers. And I think it's the best investment opportunity of our lifetime. And uh, we'll, the road will be bumpy. Right. And, but here to, to the bumpy piece, and this is, I think, the hard, the hard part. A lot of people obviously looking at the stock market, looking at the inflationary pressures uh, on our economy, thinking that things actually may get worse rather than better at least in the near term. And I think, and, and maybe you're going to suggest this is near term or too short term thinking, but there's a lot of people out there who are saying, how do we fix this now? Well, the Fed's job is to fix inflation now. The administration's very concerned about inflation now. Our elected leaders are all concerned about inflation. So what is the lowest hanging fruit uh, when it comes in, to in the, in the plan, in the plan, the, the most immediate thing we can do in the plan is cut methane emissions leaks and wasted and flared methane, which is a, a, a productive hydrocarbon. And it's one we're just tossing into the air like it's some kind of free and open sewer. If we acted on the recommendations that came out of the most recent accords, we could lower the global warming and, by four degrees C. And what does that mean and who has to do that? Uh, the large oil companies have already pledged that they will put in place better and more effective caps and controls on their, uh, on, on their wells. Right. One of the most important developments will happen later this year in a project called Climate Trace, where 50 nonprofits are coming together to pool in near real time right. their data on emissions around the world. Think of Google Earth, a kind of map that you can track uh, the, the carbon, carbon emissions, and specifically focused on methane as a first and right. most potent gas. I want to pivot, if, if you will, uh, to your, your other life in Silicon Valley as one of the, one of the great early uh, and legendary venture capital investors in some of the biggest companies that we know today. When you look at the valuations of tech companies, which you know have come down now so materially, in some cases more than 50%, you think what? These are all now undervalued. They're properly valued. What, what's happening here? I, I, I think the, the markets were overvalued, and I am... Uh, I'm really the last of your guests you should ask for what's going on with those markets. Okay, but, but, but put the public markets aside. These are moments historically that venture capital has either, got, has, has either gotten burned because they, they had invested in all sorts of companies that were growth, 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 growth without profits. And so, you know, they, it, we've seen what that looked like at post-2001. But at the same time, these also have been moments where venture capitalists for the next vintage have often been some of the most successful. So let's take a slightly longer view. For 50 years now, the growth, growth, growth tech sector has benefited from the unrelenting advances of Moore's law. law. We've halved the cost of computing, of right. microchips, every two years, a 40% annual compound improvement. Moore's law is slowing, but it's being replaced by innovations in artificial intelligence 
as a way to get even better performance out of computing. Right. And so, but you're, therefore your view is, is, is what? You look at the, uh, the Valley and all the companies that have been funded uh, that, that, by the way, may need more capital and think there's going to be access to more capital, or you think it's going to be a much more rough road? Well, for, we have too many unicorns. And so for the, 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 some companies don't deserve and will not get more capital, but the excellent companies will be able to access the capital they need to grow. Okay. John Doerr, it's great to see you. Great Thank you. you. Thank you for, uh, for welcoming us uh, to your house, uh, if you will. Uh, I'm going to send it back to Becky in New York. Becky? I want to thank Ken Langone for being with us today. Ken, before you go, we've got about 60 seconds for just a last thought, wrapping things up. Last thought is a thought I have every day. Don't give up on America. We're the greatest country on earth. I'd feel better if more people avail themselves of the political process so we brought more people into it. I'm very concerned about the professional standing of the politicians. Uh, we need more Joe Manchins to be able to take a hard stand without regard to the politics of a situation. But I still believe we're the greatest country on earth. We always will be. We're at our very best when we have our back to the wall. Go back and think about 1940 when we were entering a war, woefully underprepared for it, and look at what we did. Uh, we, are, we are and will be the greatest nation on earth for a long time to come. Don't sell us short. We're going to have to take some pain. I don't know how much pain, but we're going to have to take some pain. But I think we'll be fine. And I think I can't wait for the next 10 or 15 years. It's going to be great. Well, we are very pleased to see you again today. Thank you for thank joining you. Thank you for having me. Andrew, thank you for all the great guests you're bringing from Aspen. And I know you have more through the day. We will see you back there tomorrow. But uh, thank you, everybody, for joining Remember us. Remember your promise, thank Andrew. You're going to be here when I come I'm, next time. I'm going to be there. Okay. You and me. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.